Good afternoon. We're going to be doing a very brief podcast this afternoon to try to help review for the quiz for 6250. So we're going to be covering basically four ideas today. One relates to sampling, one relates to instruments, um, one relates to single case design, and one relates to data collection methods. So we'll talk about sampling first. There are a couple of main takeaways from the sampling topic. One is the difference between a population and a sampling frame. Um, so a population is basically the group of people to whom you want to generalize once you have collected some data. A sampling frame may be a subset of that group. A sampling frame may be the people whom, from whom you can collect data. Um, for instance, if only some of the people in your program consent to be part of the evaluation, then you can only get data from those people who consented, and that would reduce your population to a smaller number, and that smaller number is your sampling frame. Uh, the other considerations are really about types of sampling. So one thing you need to know um, is the difference between probability sampling and non-probability sampling. So probability sampling is basically a circumstance within which you know who every member of a population is. Um, an example might be you know everybody who goes to a school that you work in. And within that group, you're going to take a random sample. So each person either has the same likelihood of being selected or at least you know the likelihood of being selected that they have. So it's a very isolated set of circumstances that give you a probability sample. It has to be a random sample from a known population. But there are many, many times where we don't know um, who is in our population. We just don't have a list of the people that we might want to generalize to. So all of those other circumstances are called non-probability samples. And there are many types of non-probability samples. And these are things that are good to remember. So one is called a convenience sample, which might also be called available subjects. And this just means you have sampled people that you can get to participate in your research. Um, you know, so if, if we were going to try and, and do some research on social work students' experience of using podcasts, I might ask the listeners to fill out a, um, a survey about it. But that wouldn't necessarily be all social work students and all podcasts. That would just be our social work students and our podcasts. So that would be a convenience sample. A quota sample is different. So a quota sample um, is something that you can generate when you have a sense of how the population of people you want to generalize to is broken down among different categories. So, you know, if we looked at social work students, we know a certain percentage of our social work students are master students, a certain percentage are bachelor students. So if we knew what that percentage was, which I think we do, I think we're approximately one-fifth bachelors and four-fifths masters. So if we know that that's the case and we want to approximate the whole population of social workers, then I might take four-fifths masters and one-fifth bachelors. But it still doesn't mean it's a random sample because I might still be just using a convenient sample or subjects I can easily get to participate. Um, and so it would be potentially more representative of social work students, but not a probability sample because it's not random. Um, so the quota sample is the second type. The third type is a snowball sample. A snowball sample is used when you 
you definitely don't have a list of people who are part of the population, and they might be very difficult to recruit. Um, so an example might be people who are illegally using street drugs. There's no registry. People don't want to come forth and nominate themselves because they're a legal consideration. So if you wanted to understand what the needs of this population were or what kind of services were going to be most valuable to them, you might have a hard time getting subjects. You might have to go to a treatment center and see if you can establish a trust relationship with one or more members of the population and ask them to assist you in recruiting other, um, other subjects to participate in your, your study. And then those people, you might also then ask to, to help you recruit additional participants. So that's why it's called a snowball sample, is it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the study goes along. Um, the last type that I want you to know within the, um, the non-probability samples is called a purposive or judgmental sample. So that means you really are going after a particular group of people for a reason. You know, an example is when we took a random sample of agencies serving children in foster care, we found we had a high predominance of large agencies, a small predominance of small agencies, and no agencies that were serving primarily Latinx clients or clients with disabilities. And we then looked at that and we said, mm, you know, we really want to make sure that those constituents are represented. So we went out and sought an agency serving Latinx clients, and we sought an agency serving children with disabilities in order to feel like we could represent those constituents within the sample and say something about them. So obviously different types of samples have different strengths and weaknesses. A probability sample, which includes a random sample, is going to be the strongest type of sample that you can get because this will let you be very, very confident that the results you get from your evaluation can be generalized to the population that you are interested in. Uh, all the others, the non-probability samples, you're going to have limited ability to generalize because you really will not know the extent to which the people who are in your sample represent the people who are not in your sample. Um, so that is the most important information regarding sampling. We also have a little bit of um, information concerning sample size. So, you know, people oftentimes think that they need a certain percentage of the population to be able to generalize to the population, and that is mostly not true. Sample size depends on a variety of things including um, how many variables are in your evaluation and how confident you want to be with your, um, your conclusions um, and the power of your intervention to produce an effect and things like that. But in general, a sample size of 150 is considered large. A sample size of 300 is really considered fairly optimal. And in very few cases are we going to go for a sample that's a lot larger than that because it just gives you increasingly small rates of gain as you get larger and larger after that point. A minimum, minimum sample is usually considered to be 30. There's, you know, a disagreement as to whether or not that's a, a, a valid conclusion or not. But if you're working in an agency setting and you're fairly confident that your um, intervention is going to have a strong effect, you may be able to measure the effect of your intervention with a group of 30. Um, that said, there's a risk to having few, fewer than that people in your sample or too few people in your sample because if the 
um, power of the intervention is not strong enough, you may not measure a significant effect. That's called a type 2 error. Um, so all of these things pertain to external validity. External validity is the extent to which the sample rep represents the population of interest. So those are the things to focus on with regard to sampling. We are now going to talk a fair bit about measurement. So measurement is a, a big, big topic, and certainly people do entire degrees on this topic, but you're not going to. You're just going to have a quick and dirty review. So the one thing to know is what operationalization means. So to operationally define something means to define it in a way that it can be measured. So an example is we could say operationally define aggression. And if I said aggression is how many times do you get mad? Well, that might be hard to, me hard to measure because what does get mad mean? We might not, might not be really sure. Um, so if I said how many times do you hit, kick, um, spit, pinch, or pull hair? That would be measurable, or at least more so than the first thing that I said. So that would be an operational definition. Very often we operationally define our variables as a scale score or a score on an instrument or measure that's intended to represent the construct of interest. So it might be like a Beck depression inventory. So we might operationalize depression as score on a Beck depression inventory. Um, so there are two types of error that you can encounter while you're measuring things. One is systematic error, which is really, really bad. And one is random error, which is also bad, but not quite so bad because it's uncontrollable. Systematic error means you keep making the same mistake over and over again. So one example is social desirability bias. So if I ask something that's uncomfortable for people to answer, they might not be completely honest with me and I will systematically underrepresent whatever problem it is I'm trying to establish the frequency of. Another is acquiescence bias. So if people figure out what I'm trying to find out, what I'm trying to ascertain, they might answer in the way that they think I want them to answer. Um, and in that case, I might also be misrepresenting the truth. Uh, bad scale construction can lead to systematic error. Like if I ask a leading question, like for example, don't you think it's true that, and then people are going to say, oh, well, they want me to say it's true. So I'll say it's true. Other types of error have to do with cultural bias. So if the instrument that you have created does not give everybody the same equal chance to represent their capabilities or knowledge, it's a biased instrument. And that creates systematic error that results in you uh, making an estimate that's incorrect. So to avoid that, we want to ensure that we have reliable and valid instruments. So here are two really important constructs. One is reliability and one is validity. So reliability for instruments means that if you ask the same questions again, you ask them once, you ask them again, you'll get the same answer again, given that nothing has actually changed. Um, validity is means that you are actually measuring it accurately or you're measuring the truth. So if we go back to reliability, there are three main types of reliability that you need to know. One is inter-observer, also called inter-rater reliability. So this means that two people observe and rate the same phenomenon and come up with the same answer. Example is if you're looking at a video 
of a clinician doing a particular type of therapy, say client-centered therapy, and you're using a rating scale to see how much, um, to what extent do the clinician's behaviors align with our precepts about what is client-centered therapy. And you do this and another person does this. If you come up with the same answers, that's good. Then you have inter-rater reliability. You come up with different answers. Then you're like, well, which one's right? You don't know. You don't, don't have any reliability. Test retest uh, reliability means that we give somebody a test, the instrument we're trying to, to establish reliability for, we give it to a person or group of people. And then a little while later, we give the same instrument to the same people. Now, they're not in our study. You know, this isn't a, an evaluation of an intervention. It's just looking at the instrument. So a couple days later, we give the instrument again. And given that their circumstances have not changed significantly, we should get very comparable answers. Third type of reliability is very different from that. So third type of reliability is internal consistency reliability. Um, we often use a statistic called Cronbox Alpha to represent this. And what it means is that we're looking at the questions in the instrument themselves, itself, and we look at people's answers to the questions, and then we see to what extent do a person's answers correlate within the instrument. So if, for instance, if I give a high score on one question, I should also give a high score on another related question. And if I don't, then that's confusing, and then we really don't know which one of those is correct. Um, so that's a, a correlation statistic, and it is useful. We look for a value of greater than 0.8 to establish that kind of reliability. So validity, again, is how close, we are, how close we have come to measuring the true or real meaning of the construct that we're interested in. So there are several different types of validity, and this is all instrument validity. So there are three types of validity. This one's instrument validity. Face validity means subjective assessments by the researcher are positive. So if I look at the instrument and I think it's reasonable and it doesn't sort of like make me uncomfortable as to what it's measuring, then I'll say it has face validity. Content validity means the test evaluates all aspects of a topic or construct or behavior it's meant to measure. And usually we establish this by identifying an expert, taking the instrument to them and having them assess it. And that's content validity. Criterion-related validity means we're looking at the scores on our instrument and we are co comparing those to some other type of um, identifier that's going to help us to determine if the scores on our instrument are acting the way we expect them to. So one example is predictive validity. So this is how well the score on your instrument predicts future behavior. So a commonly used example is the ACT um, test. So if you took that in high school, it's supposed to represent how um, successful you're going to be in college. If you score high on an ACT, you're expected to do well in college. Um, and if that didn't happen, then you'd say, well, is this a good predictor or not? And you might say, well, maybe, possibly not. So known groups validity means that different people are expected to perform differently on an instrument. This is very often used for psychometric um, evaluation of instruments meant to measure clinical constructs. So if depression is what you want to measure and you go to a um, clinic, like a, a setting within which psychological services are delivered, and you have people within that setting take the instrument, and then you have people in the general population take the instrument, the expectation is cl people t receiving clinical services are more likely to score high on a depression instrument. 
Um, so those are two types of instrument validity. The third one, third type of validity, actually fourth type of validity, sorry, is construct validity. And this means the instrument measures only the things that are intended to be measured and not other things that might be related but are different. And the way that we usually establish construct validity is we use another scale that's meant to measure something that's similar or in some cases identical um, to our construct of interests. So if I had created my own child behavior scale, I might use that and the Achenbach child behavior checklist. And if the individual scores were high on the CBCL, then they should be high on my instrument too. So all of those are different types of instrument validity. And um, those are important things to understand for purposes of preparing for the quiz. Um, I'm also going to switch now to a brief discussion of single case design and program evaluation. So as I mentioned, there will not be a deep dive coverage of program evaluation, but you should understand that there are four types of program evaluation. One is a needs assessment uh, meant to understand needs in order to create or change a program. One is a process evaluation, which is undertaken in order to evaluate whether or not a program is being implemented with fidelity. One is an outcomes evaluation to determine whether or not a program is achieving the outcomes it's, that, it, that it was established um, to achieve. And then the last one is a cost evaluation to determine whether the costs incurred as a result of delivering the program are reasonable. Um, different from single case design. So important things to remember in terms of single case design have to do with the letters that we use. So you'll hear A, B, A, B, A, A, B, C, A, uh, many, many different configurations. In all circumstances, A means I am only tracking the behavior of interest. I'm not offering any intervention at all. And this is to establish a baseline before you intervene. And it's also meant to establish a follow-up period after you intervene to see if a person can maintain the gains that they have made. B always is the first intervention that you deliver. So B, if you are doing a behavior management program, A might be just tracking the frequency of the behavior, um, which could be noncompliance. B might be tracking the noncompliance after you create an incentive for compliant, compliant behavior. And then A would be when you take away the incentive and you're just tracking the behavior again. This probably won't work, by the way. But anyway, um, the third letter is C. So if I started out with, um, you know, an evaluation of the behavior and it's noncompliance, and then I start a behavior management program where I'm giving points or tokens as an incentive for behavior, and then I take that away, now I'm back to A, and they, they, they didn't get better, or maybe they got a little bit better during B, but maybe they backslid during A again. C would actually be the second type of intervention. So one thing I might try there is trauma-focused therapy. Um, and if they're able to maintain gains during that, then I might go back to A, take away the intervention and track the behavior again. Um, in all cases, you want to make sure you get enough days or, you know, um, indicators of how frequently the behavior is occurring or how severe the behavior is or the duration of the behavior, whatever you're measuring, you want to track that for at least 10 days in each phase optimally. 
So that is some, those are some key points to think about when you're thinking about single case design. Um, so the last piece that I really want to cover has to do with data collection. So we talked a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of collecting data using different formats. So one example is electronic data collection, which basically means I'm using um, some type of survey software to help collect my data. So there are advantages to this. One of the advantages is that you could potentially get data from a lot of different people. Uh, another advantage is it's fairly cost effective. Another advantage is the data are already entered for you. You don't have to do any data entry. There are also disadvantages to this modality. So, you know, one disadvantage is that people have to answer the question the way that it was written. If the answer doesn't fit them, they just have to pick one. And if they don't understand the question, there's no opportunity to have the question explained. Also, some people don't have access to technology. Some people are not comfortable with technology. Um, and in rare circumstances, people might just take your survey over and over again to try to get an incentive. So a different um, modality for data collection is face-to-face. -face. And that is really where you're either doing an interview, which is very open-ended questions, or a survey, which might be closed-ended questions, or a mix. Um, if you have eight to 10 people where you're doing face-to-face -face data collection with, that's a focus group. So here, some of the advantages are um, you have an opportunity to explain the questions um, so that people can understand them clearly. If they don't answer in a way that shows they understood the question, you can rephrase the question. If you offer answer choices that, that just don't fit them, you can make a note of that. And you have an opportunity to really build a rapport with your respondents to make sure that they you know, are, are connected with you and stay engaged with the process. So disadvantages to this are people might not feel like the process is as anonymous, and so they might be more hesitant to divulge um, uh, personal information. It also is the case that this is a labor-intensive and costly method um, to use when collecting data, and so you may be um, restricted in the number of people from whom you can collect data. So that is a, a quick little review. I hope that that is helpful for you, and I look forward to seeing you soon.